number 80. Hymn number 80. God leads us along.
blessing of being in your place of worship. I pray you'll bless this time of offering, and I pray that you'll uh, bless the time of sermon as Pastor Daniel comes following the offering. In Jesus' name, amen. David Dell, thank you so much. We have a video here uh, from our North American Mission Board.
That's from our North American Mission Board and uh, our Annie Armstrong Easter offering. As you know, we've been collecting it through Easter. And through um, uh, last Sunday, we had collected over $4,300. Every penny of that goes towards reaching North America for Christ. And I think one of the key statistics there, I think I saw in 1917, there was one church in North America for every 1,900 people. And then last year in 2000. Um, 17, 100 years later, I said there were one church for every 6,700 people. And that's the real concern with a lot of missiologists here for our, our nation, that even though the population has exploded and there's a great movement towards cities, the actual number of churches, even though, say there's more and there's church planning, it's not keeping up with the population growth. There's fewer churches for the people. So that's why NAM has such an emphasis on church planning in urban areas because that's where there's a, such a desert of churches in, in that. So that's very um, exciting. In fact, Zach Bauer, our minister of students this past week, has been the North American Mission Board does something called Sin City Tours. They've got one coming up with Cincinnati. They've identified 32 cities here in North America. They've got one coming up in August in Cincinnati. And he went one, and they, and they pay for that. We pay, you pay a small amount, but for the most part, the NAM pays for it. Well, uh, Zach went on one to Boston this past week, which is exciting to be a part of because he got to go up there and see what the Lord was certainly doing there in Boston and partner and connect with church planners and pray for those stories he builds share so that's exciting to see what the lord is doing here at the north american mission board and through our giving to annie armstrong as well as through the cooperative program if you have your bible and i hope you do open to the gospel of luke we are going through on sunday evenings we are going through the entire book of luke then after that we're going to finish up in Acts. so we hope to finish this this year maybe so that's our goal, but if it, if it goes into 2019, that's okay. So um, we're going to see here a section of Scripture that I believe is one. Uh, well, number one, it's a man, a centurion, who's a Gentile, and he received a healing, and Jesus was impressed with his faith. And the goal is if this, if this type of man, who's not a Jewish man, can have this type of faith, can I have the same type of faith? And that, then we're also going to see about a woman Jesus, he raised three people from the dead. Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, 12-year-old daughter, and a widow's son at, uh, at Nain. And that's what we're going to see here. So we're going to look at those two main stories uh, this evening. But Luke chapter 7, verse 1. And then at the end, I'm going to share... In fact, I'll take this because I won't want to... Um, uh, Van, uh, Richard, do y'all have those slides up there? Uh, I want to talk about the invitation because I want to tie it in with this uh, this morning. Do you have those four points from um, I emailed you? These are how to encourage a response at the invitation. One of the things when you're at a worship service and you are in the presence of uh, the Lord and invitation comes to service, not only do I have a key part, but you do too. And I want to, I have four things. I, maybe they don't work on the board, but I can read them out to you here. And I want to actually go over those now, so that way we don't have the book of Luke, Gospel of Luke, then here we're just tacking this on at the end. But uh, I believe the invitation 
is really what a worship service leads up to. You invite your friends to church. You've been praying for them to come and hear the gospel. You've been singing songs bringing glory to Christ. And you're leading. Because we have, we have guests at our church every Sunday. And you, know, you never know. There's lost people who've never heard of Jesus, or at least have never heard of the biblical Jesus. And the great thing about the Holy Spirit is He convicts and speaks to people. And you never know when someone's ready to be saved. You should always be expecting... Today can be the day of salvation. The Lord works in mysterious ways, and we're actually going to see that here in the Gospel of Luke. But number one here, when it, throughout a worship service, this is how to encourage a response at invitation. And this isn't just apply to our, this church here. This is anywhere you go. If you're at a worship service, and they have a public altar call, which hopefully all services do, you, uh, as a pew person sitting in the pew, you can certainly have a big part of that. Number one, you want to be praying throughout the service. You need to be praying that God's Spirit moves the people. The songs bring glory to His name and it's convicting. You'll be praying that as there's guests and people sitting out there, maybe folks you've invited, that they're paying attention and the words speak to them. There should come with an expectation that God is going to answer your prayers. You should genuinely believe that. Listen, if you invite someone to church, and they come and they hear the good news preached, they will, um, they will be pierced, the Holy Spirit will pierce their soul, and they will respond. God answers those prayers, I promise. I've seen it numerous times before. Number two, you need to be aware of the Spirit's moving. Notice how people fall under conviction. <clears throat> people do come under conviction. And it's something that the Holy Spirit, He moves and He's certainly out there. And how, uh, I want to tell you how you know if somebody's paying attention to church service. If they're looking down like that, or they're staring at the floor, or they're uh, lo looking around like that, they're probably not listening. People who are actually making eye contact and actually looking up at the person speaking or singing, those are going to be the people under conviction because they're tuned in. They're not worried about who's walking around. They're not worried about their phone going off. There's a sense of they're locked in and focused on what's occurring. Number three, you don't want to be a distraction. Sometimes an invitation, it's tempting especially if you feel the worship service has gone over and you need to go to your car. So at the invitation, instead of walking down the aisle, all of a sudden that person slips out. Instead of getting saved, they're going to dinner. And the invitation serves as an easy early exit to the back door. The problem with that is someone who's there, who is under conviction, and they're thinking about getting saved, I want to tell you, if someone's under conviction and they're sitting towards the back, they're actually wondering, I wonder if anybody else is going to walk down the aisle. And they start to see somebody come out, they're thinking, okay, they're going to respond, and I'll follow them. And then the person gets out and goes to dinner. They're thinking, well, my goodness, that wasn't what I thought. If they're all leaving, I'm, I'm not slipping out. I mean, it literally, instead of coming this way to get, get Jesus, they're, they're going out to the barbecue place. And I share that, that literally, that quenches the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5 warns us about 
quenching the Holy Spirit and getting up and leaving, especially if you're sitting up front, getting up and leaving during the invitation. I tell folks, if someone has to leave at the invitation, see the very back pew against the wall by the door. That's your pew. Because no one will see you. You can easily just slip on out. But if you sit up here with Sherry, and you still walk far, see you're going out there. It is. It's, uh, that, <clears throat> it gives an image of the invitation isn't important. In fact, I've got to get to the car. And that, that literally can serve as a distraction to folks during a time of invitation. And not only that, when folks make a decision to follow Christ, when folks come forward, maybe they join our church, or they um, uh, want to get saved or baptized, you need to come through the receiving line. And here's what you need to tell them. You need to invite them to your Sunday school class. And, and more specifically, because probably five or six people are inviting them to Sunday school, you need to write down on a piece of paper, I attend Cheryl Biddle's class. We meet in room B2 in the fellowship hall. Like that way they actually have something in their hand. Because when you shake 70 people's hands you do not remember names nor do you remember oh where was that class who is the teacher they don't if you don't write it down they will not remember it that is a key way of connecting someone and you you put it in their hand and say hey i love for you to come visit in sunday school this would be a great class for you to attend you can certainly pick uh connect through that 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 is highly important in assimilation and connecting people in a church. So what do you do for during a worship service? You need to be praying throughout the service. Pray for me. Pray that I say the, uh, get, have the right words. I love how Franklin Graham describes preaching. This is Billy Graham's son. He calls it, he always leaves 10 minutes of God room. Say he's got 30 minutes to preach. Well, he prepares a 20-minute sermon, and he leaves 10 minutes of open stuff. And that open area is where he might say some things and share some stories that were not in his notes. And he allows it, the Holy Spirit, to move. And he says every message is people come up, and they always thank him for that extra stuff that wasn't even in the notes. Because the Lord will use songs and words and sermons and music to draw people to the cross. There needs to be a reverent spirit when you walk into the sanctuary. An expectation says, God, you're going to move. I'm looking forward to what's going to happen. I'm anticipating the invitation. Here they are. Let's go through it. Number one, the first one is be praying throughout the service. That's number two. Be aware of the spirits moving. Notice how people fall under conviction. See if number three is up there. It's don't be a distraction. And number four is speak to those who've made a decision. So, that, so those, are the, um, those are four things I want to go over, remind folks the importance of them. All right, open your Bibles. Luke chapter 7 here. I want, us, I want us to see what the gospel says about the centurion here about the importance of how this man who's a Gentile, how he had the greatest faith, a least unlikely person, put great faith in the Lord. And then we're all going to see about one of the greatest 
um, uh, really, I think one of the great miracles that the Lord certainly did. Luke chapter 7, verse 1. When he had concluded saying all this, that's the Sermon on the Plain. What he's referencing there in Luke chapter 6. The Sermon on the Plain, very, that's what we covered last, really, past couple of Sunday nights. And then he just uh, talked to all these folks. Then we get to verse 1. When he had concluded saying this, all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. A centurion servant who was highly valued by him was sick and about to die. So centurion, who, what is a centurion? A centurion is someone who's over 100 Roman soldiers. They manage someone, they're pretty high up, and they've got 100 soldiers they manage. So they say something, and those hundred men, they have to do what the centurion says. So this is a pretty honorable position. So all of a sudden, this centurion here has a servant. A servant was a slave. That's what a servant meant here. This person was owned by the Romans. <coughs> we went to Mary Todd Lincoln's house yesterday, and um, that was a period, uh, 18, before 1865, when slavery existed. And one of, the, um, one of the great things about the Todd family down the road here, they typically owned, on average, five slaves. And the slaves did the cooking and the cleaning and helped take care of the children. The Todd family was very wealthy and prominent throughout Lexington. And they were known to take very good care of their slaves, meaning that the slaves that lived in their house, they had, there was a little outhouse building there behind their home. That's where the slaves and where the kitchen uh, was as well. So... Uh, the Todd family took good care of them. And what that meant is they didn't beat them. They didn't work them to death. So they were provided for, uh, they, had their, they had the supplies. When it was time to cook, they actually had food. This family had the money to buy the food. So um, it was in many ways, if you were, happened to be a slave, being a slave here in America for the Todd family would have been a good thing. If there's such, a, I guess you, you could say that. But they were telling us on our tour about this, how they took good care of their slaves. Now, that was not the case in all. Typically, poorer folks, because they didn't have the resources for the slaves, they, um, a lot of times they would not take care of their slaves. But that's what's going on here. This centurion has a slave. So when we see the word a servant, that we're not just talking about someone who just happens to love the family and helps them out. This, this centurion owns this person. So... A centurion slave who was highly valued by him was sick and about to die. So obviously when you had a good servant, a good slave, you, this was someone you wanted, this, this servant took good care of the centurion and helped run the house. So this is a very important person of the family. Verse 3, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him requesting him to come and save the life of his servant. When they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this, because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. So understand what happened here. This centurion, who's over the region of the Roman area there in Capernaum, that manages these 100 soldiers, so he basically kind of keeps peace of the area. He was very kind to Jewish folks. And he helped build them a synagogue. I and mean, he just said, hey, this is my 
I'm managing the people here. Might as well just, you want to worship in a synagogue? I'll help build you one here. So that's what this gentleman certainly did. And so what happens, they're, they're, this, this centurion's servant, slave, is about to die, so they're coming to him, and they're saying, Hey, Jesus, we just want you to know, <clears throat> he loves the Jewish people. If you could ever do a miracle this would, to a Gentile, this one here would be a good one worth doing it to. Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, since I'm not worthy to have you come into my, under my roof. Now, this is important. What this meant is Jewish people were not allowed to enter a Gentile person's house. It was considered unclean. Well, this Roman centurion, since he managed Jewish territory, he knew Jewish customs and laws. So he knew a Jewish person was not supposed to enter a Gentile's house. But this is what's so impressive about this. So this guy's pretty smart, the centurion. He makes a bold statement about the Lord. He understands authority. Verse 7, That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. Right away, do we talk to Jesus that way? Do we have a type of faith that we say, Lord, I know that by your word, this person can be healed, this person can be saved, this need can be met right here. This Roman centurion knew by the power of Jesus' word, it could happen. What a bold faith. There is literally power in Jesus' name. And this Roman Gentile, who's not a Jewish person, he recognizes this. Remember how creation occurred in Genesis chapter 1? God spoke, and it came into existence. At the mouth of Jesus, do you know Revelation chapter 20 says, Jesus will speak, and the devil will be defeated. At the mouth of Jesus, the Bible says it's like a sword coming out of his mouth. He'll just slay the dragon. All he does is just speak the word. There's not going to be a wrestling match at the end. There's not going to be a battle where Jesus is going to have to actually try to see if he's physically strong enough to wrestle down the devil and chain him up in hell forever. Jesus just speaks and the devil will end. He's the rider, the rider on the white horse with a sword coming out. He shows up and says, Devil, go to your end. And there he goes. That's how the Lord works. He speaks and it comes to existence. He speaks and it ceases to exist. So we have, a, we have a Messiah, the Lord, that if he wants a healing here, he just says the word. That's the power of Jesus Christ. This is why, tying this in with this morning, we should have such a brokenness for lost people. And the reason why is God wants lost folks saved, just like that video we saw. Yet we, we are the ones, if we want to see an altar full of people every Sunday, and people responding to an invitation, and responding to the gospel, Broadway, we're going to have to be the ones saying, Lord, Will you give us a soul tonight? Will you give us another soul next Sunday morning? 
We want to see lost souls who were damned for hell to be rescued by your word and now going to heaven. With the Lord's mouth, he can speak that into happening. That's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord answers prayers. And the prayer we see is from the centurion. He is literally telling Jesus, Jesus, it's your word, buddy. You just say it, and it's going to happen. That's a confidence we see here that unfortunately a lot of us, especially here in a very practical, rational nation, we don't have that. A very science-driven, technology-driven culture, we don't have a type of faith that we go to the Lord and say, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I don't want to be a bother to you. You just say the word. Verse 8. For I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Like what the centurion just says is, Jesus, I know what it's like to have people under my authority. In fact, I have a hundred of them. And if I tell a soldier to go, he's going to go. If he doesn't go, there's great consequences. I'll kill him. If I tell my servant to do this, the servant does it. So the centurion's relating to Jesus, saying, Jesus, I know what it's like to speak and people listen. Sherry and I have four children. We speak and nobody listens. That's what our home is like. This is what we do. Have you ever felt that way? Uh, even in work, if you where we work, even if you have people with authority at work, you speak and they still don't listen. A lot of us don't understand like the type of authority that Jesus and this centurion have. We tell and we don't even have we we no, we don't even tell people, we beg people to do stuff and they still don't do it. That's what it's like for me, that's what it's like for Sherry, that's what it's like for most of us. But these guys they had an authority, this Roman centurion, if you didn't listen to him, the guy killed you. It's, that's the type of authority it's like with Rome. You're going to say yes, sir, to whatever he says. We've talked about on Wednesday nights. We're talking about leading up to the first king of Israel with Samuel here. Now he's going to soon anoint Saul. Well, we don't know what it's like living like a, under authority of a king at all. You obey the king. The king speaks, and it's yes, sir. Anything the king wants, if the king's sad, you need to be sad. The king's happy, you're happy. That you go along with the king. Well, the centurion's saying, I know, understand authority. This is an absolute authority. It's obey or die. That's how it goes. Jesus also has that same type of authority. That is an authority you and I as believers, we have the power to tap into understanding and grasping what Jesus' word, he speaks and it will occur. So that's what he says here. He, he can do this and it occurs. That's verse 8. Verse 9. Now look at this response. This is what's so powerful about this. Jesus heard this and was amazed at him. He was amazed. Has Jesus ever been amazed at you? Has Jesus ever been amazed at Broadway? Can we manufacture a worship service in the presence of God? Can we put together in our little worship guide here, says, God, this is what we're going to do, and we're going to do this event, 
this here, this here, and this here. And Lord, please bless it. Lord, you just bless what we want here at our church. Does that amaze the Lord? Jesus was amazed at the man's faith. That's what amazed Jesus. This guy really believed it. He really believed that Jesus could speak the word and the, and the servant will be healed from a long way. What the principle we see here tonight for us as believers, that's what the Lord's looking at Broadway for us. We cannot predict or guess or manufacture worship services and religion and events. We have to literally cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, we want, this, is a, this is a spiritual event that only a, a spiritual bring, being can bring life into. Lord, that's you. You're the only God based on what Isaiah 45 verse 22 says. There's no other. Lord, you bring the, you amaze us with your faith. And it says, Jesus heard this and he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd, now love this. He turns out he's going to talk to the crowd. He says, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel. Now the question is, did Jesus ever touch the boy or the servant? Did Jesus ever even say, be healed from afar? Let's go take, you know, go and be well. Jesus never even acknowledges anything about the servant in this passage. He's talking about this centurion's great faith. And what's even amazing about this is the centurion doesn't even see Jesus. He sent his servants to come talk to him. So understand, Jesus is having a conversation not with the centurion, but with the centurion's servants. Because the centurion says, go and tell Jesus that he doesn't need to come to my house after all. He just needs to say the word. Because I understand authority. If I speak, people obey. And now Jesus hears this from these servants coming to the house. And he says, I, crowd, I want to talk to you here. I've never seen such great faith. This guy's a Gentile. He's not even an Israelite. He's not saved. But he's, I am amazed at his faith. Now look what happens here. Never once do we say anything about the servant. We don't wave a magic wand. Jesus doesn't even, even have to touch him. He doesn't even have to say the boy's name. Verse 10. When those who had been sent returned to the house. Now, now we're coming back to the house. They found the servant in good health. What I love about this is Jesus always one-ups you. And what I mean by that is Understand what happened. The centurion's servant was sick. So we go send a message to Jesus. Jesus, please come to the house. So Jesus starts heading to the house. So then we realize, you know, he's a Jewish man. He really can't walk into my house. So let's just go ahead and send some more servants out there. And let's catch him before he knocks on the door and says, just, Jesus, just say the word. So he comes and says, Jesus, just say the word. Well, Jesus doesn't have to just say the word. He says, you know, I'm really amazed at your guy's faith. 
your owner's faith here. And in fact, I haven't even found faith like this such in Israel. Well, we got to go. I'll see you later. And he walked away. They go back home. Jesus goes that way. And they walk in. And the servant is healed. Jesus healed the servant without even saying he was going to heal the servant. He is amazement of the man's faith is what brought the healing to the servant. And I think the principle for us is if we have a type of faith or a belief that Jesus, you can, you can do it. He says, I'll show you I can do it. I can do it, and I can even do it that you don't even know I'm even doing it. Because I'm so impressed with what you believe. What amazed Jesus was the belief of the centurion. He understood the power and authority Jesus had. Next story, verse 11. Now this one here. Going back to this, what, um, uh, what we see here, the principles we see here in this story, is that faith here, it actually often appears in very unexpected places. This is an unexpected place. A Gentile has greater faith than the Jewish people. And not only that, the centurion saw something in Jesus, that disciples. Remember, at this point, Jesus has already called his 12 disciples. And they witnessed the story. This centurion saw something in Jesus that the disciples didn't. He called him Lord. He realized Jesus was Lord. Jesus had the authority and the power to speak, and it came into existence. And not only that, the centurion saw something in his servant that most people didn't. He didn't view his servant as just another cog in the machine, meaning here is just another slave. I can replace my slave like this. I'll just go to the market and get a new one. He had a genuine compassion for his servant who was hurting. He cared for the servant. This centurion was a godly, compassionate man. And who was a Gentile, who was lost, who also yet recognized Jesus as Lord. Faith appeared in an unexpected place. Second story we're going to see tonight. This is one of the three. Jesus raised three people from the dead. Here's one of them right here. In about a month, we're going to see the next one. And that's going to be Jairus' son. And in the uh, Gospel of John, we see how Lazarus in John chapter 11 was raised from the dead. But this one here is probably the least uh, told, least uh, read story that Jesus uh, certainly uh, raised someone from the dead. About a year ago, I preached on this, I think on a Sunday morning here. A widow's son raised to life. This is in a place called Nain. Nain is about six miles from Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. Afterward, he was on his way to a town called Nain. We're in northern Israel. His disciples and a large crowd were traveling with him. Just as he neared the gate of the town, a dead man was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. Now understand what's happening. The way we do funerals is different than Bible times. When someone passes away now, they go to a funeral home and they, are, they don't get you know, diseases or anything like that. They uh, get embalmed and they're, they're away from everyone and they're until a visitation or a viewing. That's not how Bible times, they didn't have the hygiene and the embalming uh, methods that we do have today. So typically when someone would pass away, 
if they, ha- if they passed away in the morning or in the middle of the night, they were burying them that day, that afternoon. Now, if you passed away late in the afternoon, the funeral would be, they would wait one night and do it the next day. But usually within 24, 30 hours, you're in the, you're in the grave. And what would happen is they would have open casket processions. So you would have your uh, memorial service there. Typically, it would be at someone's home. And then they would take the body in a, in a box, and they would literally, the men would carry it to the graveyard, the cemetery. So in an open casket, it was a different way, uh, uh, not always the most sanitary way to certainly um, to uh, have a burial, but that is, what, that is what occurred. So what's going on here is Jesus comes to this little town called Nain, and he sees, he's walked in, and sure enough, there's a funeral going on. And he sees there's a widow, this who's lost her son, that's who's died. Now, her being a widow means her husband's dead. And she only had one son, and she had already lost her husband. So what does that mean for her? That means she has no, uh, no security. There's no social security, no 401k, no Kentucky teacher's pension plan. There's none of that going on. So if this occurs to you, if you're a widow and you lose your son, you have lost your sense of security. This is devastating for this, for this lady. So all of a sudden, Jesus walks up, and he couldn't have timed it any better. And he's going to see the compassion goes out for him because he knows what this means for this woman. <clears throat> Latter part of verse 12. So we see here, he was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. A large crowd from the city was also with her. So typically for a funeral, everybody shows up. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, don't weep. Now, that's an understatement because, of course, she's weeping. She just lost her son. She's already lost her, her husband. How could some stranger walk up and tell me not to weep? And that's just insensitive. That's like you or I showing up at a funeral service over there at Kerr Brothers and saying, guys, it's going to be okay. Y'all don't need to weep here anymore. Don't weep. It's going to be fine. And they look at you thinking, who are you? How do you know what we're going through? Then he came up, verse 14, and touched the open coffin. And the pallbearers stopped. And he said, young man, I tell you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to speak. He starts talking. And Jesus you know, gave him to a mother. What that meant as he's probably helping him down. Out of, remember, we're carrying a coffin on our shoulder. And now here comes the man out of the coffin. Jesus probably helping him down. And people are in awe. They're falling down thinking, what on earth is going on? And Jesus gave the boy to his mother. Now, there's only one group of people who are actually sad about this event. And that's the funeral home director. Because he's now got to give a refund. Because they've bought all this stuff. We've embalmed the person, get them ready for burial. Now we've given a refund to this situation. This didn't go well for, for Kerr Brothers at this, at this funeral here. But Jesus here, the principle we see here, I believe in what, it's not so much 
that Jesus can heal someone or raise someone from the dead. This is one of three instances. The key principle, I believe, what Jesus is trying to teach us is in verse 13. Look what Jesus does here. Verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he looked at this widow. He had compassion for her. He knew what the road was ahead. He knew this poor woman is going to have it rough. She's lost everyone. Compassion went out from Jesus. Listen, Broadway, if Jesus is compassionate, he expects us to be compassionate. What compassion means is empathy. That is where someone is hurting. They're hurting, and your heart should go out for them. That's what it means to bear, bear their cross. That's what Jesus talks about when he calls them the one another's. All of a sudden, you see this person is hurting, therefore, if they're weeping, I'm going to be weeping. If they're struggling, I'm struggling. If they're limping along, and they've got a long journey of difficult days of a surgery ahead of them, your heart goes out towards them. We live in a time where compassion and empathy, it's not there. People don't have it. They don't have time. They don't even think about problems. You go on social media, no one wants to share their problems. They present the exact opposite of problems. People show a perfect life. There's no problems here. Where Jesus looked at this woman, and she's hurting. And his heart went out to her. We are surrounded, this was last Sunday night's, last Sunday morning sermon, we are surrounded by people who are living in the land of Baca, as the Bible says. It's a place of weeping as people are going to Jerusalem. There's just heartache and sadness all around. And Jesus' compassion goes out to them. You want me to tell you why he was so compassionate? Because Jesus, remember, he was there at creation. Do you know death was not in God's original plan? There weren't supposed to be funerals in the Garden of Eden. There wasn't supposed to be some, someone such as a widow. What's a widow? That had to come as a result of the fall because people die. What do you mean a, a son could die? What is that? Jesus, for him, he knew in the Garden of Eden when God created the world, there was no death. Adam and Eve did not die until sin entered them. The sting, the greatest sting that sin has is death. And here this poor woman, she was getting stung by it. She experienced it. And he had compassion on her. Do you know, I learned in seminary. Do you know the most important time for a pastor to be available? is when a death call comes in. I want to tell you, from my, and this is true. <clears throat> this isn't, if you're a deacon here, or you're a Sunday school leader, even if you're a just regular church member, if you know someone, and they have a loved one die, you need to immediately go over to their house, or you need to call them right then. 
That is an important time. When someone experiences death, they have died. I don't mean a week later. I mean here and now. If there is one thing that should interrupt anything you're doing, it's when so, if you have a close friend or you have a Sunday school member or class member, you have a family member, and they experience a death, you should stop what you're doing. And if you can't physically go to their home or wherever they're at and minister to them and be with them, you should call them right away. People remember that at that time. Brother Hurd does this all the time. He knows the power of the presence, of personal presence during the period of a death. Sending a card is great a few days later, but people remember that personal touch. This woman just lost her son. It wasn't a week ago. It was immediately. They were going down. They were going to bury her. She was, oh, she was hurt. It just happened. And Jesus was compassion. We need to be a church. If you have the spiritual gift of compassion, and that's the spiritual gift of encouragement, if that is you, even if you don't have, you can develop it, of empathy, and someone dies, and you hear someone just passed away, you stop what you're doing. I need to have a personal touch. That's the best time to do ministry to someone because they need it the most when they just lost someone. That's what Jesus is doing here. His heart goes out to this woman. He has compassion for her. Look what happens here. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Then fear came over everyone, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. I want to explain this. What this is talking about here is Elisha and Elijah. In verse 16, it says a great prophet has come about. What that meant is there were two prophets in the Old Testament, only two, that raised dead people. Elijah went to, a, went to an area called Zarephath. And there was a widow there in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 through 22. And she was the widow and her son died. Elijah needed some food. He walked in, and she was grieving. Her son's dying, just died. Elijah laid on top of the boy. Life came back into him. And God extended and blessed this family. And Zarephath is a Gentile city. The first person in the Bible who got arose from the dead was a Gentile. Secondly... The son of a Shunanite woman was raised by Elisha. That's the successor of Elijah. And this person also had died. This son is a widow. And the Shunanite woman received a blessing and a, and a, a raising of her son from Elisha. Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament both raised dead people from the grave. Both of them were boys to widows. So what happens is in verse 16, when they say a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited their people, that does not mean all the people all of a sudden said, well, we now believe Jesus is the Messiah. 
They believed Jesus was Elijah and Elisha. That's what they're talking about there. They're referencing those two um, raised two times in the, raised from the dead there in 1 Kings chapter 17 and in 2 Kings chapter 4. So what we know <coughs> is we begin to see at this point here in Luke chapter 7, it says in this report, this report about him went throughout Judea in all the vicinity. So what do we see here? Just Jesus just isn't Lord of the living. He's Lord of the dead. Jesus Christ, even dead people, we learned from this morning, every knee will bow. No matter who they are, even if they're in heaven or, or they're in hell, they are going to bow at the, at the name of Jesus Christ. He has all authority. He commands it. Not only that, we begin to see an awakening of faith happen in this section. But at this point, it's not a saving faith. Now, I think this is important. We start to see the people are starting to believe and saying, Wow, Jesus here, he's something else. He's like one of the prophets. The centurion has faith in this man. But this isn't the saving faith Jesus is soon going to teach us about. We're starting to see, and I think what the principle for that is that many times in our lives, a lot of times before someone gets saved, they start, have, start seeing how God starts working in their life. And the way that happens is all of a sudden, a friend invites them to church. All of a sudden, they start to have hardship, setbacks in their life, and they start maybe reading their Bible. They're not getting saved, but they're starting to start listening to spiritual things on TV, on the radio. And they're starting to see gospel seeds planted into their life. By the time usually someone walks out and gives their life to Jesus, at that point, they've already been dealing with this with the Lord, and many times for several weeks or months or even years. And they're coming to the realization that says, God wants me to do this. I'm not doing this for you, preacher. I'm doing it for the Lord. He's the one doing it. Lead me here. And we starting to see this here in the Gospel of Luke. We're starting to see the gospel seeds of faith are starting to awaken in the people, leading up to the saving faith that Jesus is soon going to teach about. Now tonight, we're about to have our invitation. We have an opportunity to respond to the gospel. If you've never had saving faith in Jesus Christ, if you've never had the type of faith that Jesus Christ is amazed by, you can certainly respond to the gospel and receive that tonight. As always, I'm standing down front. I'm going to close this in a prayer, and then we're going to have our hymn of invitation. God, I thank you so much for these two gospel stories here. Lord, I pray that we will have this same type of faith of this centurion who, is, um, who amazes the people. Lord, he just tells you to say the word. Lord, we also say that. We want to have words of faith. Lord, we want to speak truth to you. Lord, if you are leading people to the cross, Lord, we say that word. We call it out. Lord, also, this widow, she lost her son, and you looked at her, and compassion went out. Lord, give us that same compassion that you have for others. Lord, when we know folks who are dealing with death, Lord, give us that. Lord, when someone dies, let us be the one who goes over there and visits, or who makes a phone call wherever at, that we stop and we touch them. Lord, we want the same type of compassion that you had. Lord, it was no problem at all for you to raise this boy from the dead. 
Lord, this is the first person you raised from the dead. There's going to be two more to come. And then you yourself, Ray, came from the dead. Lord, I pray tonight, if there's anybody here that needs to have faith in you, I pray they respond to the gospel. Lord, we don't want to be bashful. We want to be bold in our faith, in our witness. Lord, we give you this invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to have our invitation. David Dell's going to lead us for a song. Let's stand together and sing. I'll be waiting down front for you to respond. Sing together, I have decided. on Wednesday nights, we go through, uh, we're going through the Bible, well, not the whole Bible, but we're doing Bible study at 6.30 right here in the sanctuary, and this Wednesday is going to be really good, it's going to be the call of Samuel, so it's going to be about how God called Samuel as a young boy to serve him, and how he took Eli to help him realize and answer that call, I think this is really important today, because I believe God still calls people, and still especially calls younger people, a lot of times younger people don't know how to answer God's call and take someone more mature in the faith to point them to saying this is how you respond. So it's a great, a great uh, lesson, I think. It's going to be a great Bible study. We meet at 6.30 here as we have Bible, um, a dinner at 5.30 and Bible study at 6.30. And David's going to close this in a song. We're going to sing together, Blessed be the name of the chorus.